And hello, everybody, and welcome to the 38th blockbuster episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that rotates the format whenever we damn well please. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilka, a.k.a. MTG Critic on the interwebs. My co-host is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, everybody. Glad to be here for episode 38. Looking forward to discuss Pro Tour Kaladesh and all the exciting changes we've seen lately. Our show is sponsored by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. That's right, Travis. Why don't you uh, break down what we've got going on this week? Sure. This week, we have our show in four segments. Segment one is our top movers, where we will be looking at the cards that have seen the largest price changes over the past week. Section two is our cards to watch, where we will be looking at cards that we think uh, are well positioned to uh, to pick up some some price over the next uh, next couple of weeks, months. Uh, segment three is our metagame week in review. We will be looking at Pro Tour Kaladesh that just went to this past weekend. And finally, segment four, our topic of the week, we'll be discussing the rotation changes that were announced just Wednesday morning. Um, that's, a, that's a pretty big change in a lot of different ways. So let's hop in uh, right here at the start. Uh, the first card at the bottom of our list is Wandering Fumarole from Oath of the Gatewatch. Started the week at about 350 and jumped up to about 650 for for just under a double up. Um, we saw a lot of Wandering Fumarole in the Pro Tour. Uh, that's where most of this came from. Uh, a lot of control decks kind of came out of the woodworks that we didn't know were there. Uh, before um, so the star city weekend the weekend prior we didn't see a lot of blue red and then suddenly the pro tour it was everywhere um, which is where that came from so uh, wandering fumarole really really made a pretty good move this past weekend yes it did uh, tons blue red decks and uh, the card was definitely on the move um, we also had uh, bristling hydra uh, make a pretty decent move for a Kaladesh rare from $1.50 to $3. Not the kind of move that's going to make any of us very much money after expenses and fees and so forth, but worth noting that uh, if you were looking to get in on the red-green energy deck, you had a, a better shot at uh, several of the cards included um, about seven days ago than you will now, but that deck is still relatively inexpensive overall. Uh, and I expect to see various uh, takes on that double strike red green aggro strategy as the season progresses. Yeah, and it looks like Bristling Hydra is holding a price tag of two fifty, two seventy five, pretty uh, pretty firmly, which is a little surprising. I mean, the deck runs four copies. Um, the deck needs to keep doing well though, because this is a collection of cards that um, you know aren't used in any of the other decks that showed up at the Pro Tour, and we did see quite a few of the the potential uh, inclusions for the format. But um, when you have a really cheap deck, um, if it doesn't barely runs any mythics and only runs a few rares, um, there is always an opportunity for those rares to get a little higher than they would be able to otherwise. For sure, for sure. Um, okay, the next on our list is Metalwork Colossus. Uh, you know, <laughs> this card's been all over the place and within the last week. So right now, we're showing it went from about a dollar forty, dollar fifty up to three. 
um, for a little over a double up. Uh, prices right now look like they're back under $2, uh, close to two bucks. And I saw them over five at one point. So this is this has really been been up and down. Uh, Metalwork Colossus is the 11 mana 1010, whose cost is reduced for your non-creature artifacts. So this is a, a cost reduction mechanic, even though it uh, may not be quite as obvious um, as something like Delve, but you know, I, I I mentioned this as a potential breakout card from the Pro Tour on our last show because it is so easy to overlook these um, cost reduction mechanics. Um, it happened with Delve. It happened here. Uh, it happened with uh, something else not that long ago too. It was like, oh yeah, it turns out this is actually good. Um, so I I wouldn't be surprised if this is not the uh, the last we see of Metalwork Colossus. Um, I think that he could uh, he could end up being a pretty major part of the format, um, especially with the rotation change. We have no idea what's going to end up with a set in Kaladesh later on in its life. So uh, if this guy drops below, you know, well under a dollar back in the 50 cent range, I think it's worth looking at him again because these types of cards can really come out of the woodwork at times. Yeah, this is another card that is is a build around that really only has a home in its own deck. Um, you know, th- there's some question as to whether it could ever be a modern card. Um, it could certainly fit into some EDH decks, I suppose. Um, but the the deck that that made the splash and did actually do reasonably well at the Pro Tour, there just weren't that many people playing it, um, is the same one that LSV ran a series on and, and just destroyed people um, playing standard in a, in a video series for Channel Fireball uh, earlier in the week. And what the deck does is it basically just uses some card selection like Glint Nest Crane to set up uh, a board state where they have, you know, 9, 10, or 11 uh, mana worth of artifacts, including foundry inspectors that cost three but reduce uh, further artifacts by one, um, matter reshapers, uh, metal spinners, puzzle knots, prophetic prisms. Um, one of the key cards is cultivator's caravan as kind of a backup uh, 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 aggro plan or mid range aggro plan. Um, they sometimes run haunted cloak, which is an equipment for three um, out of. Uh, Shadows over Innistrad that gives a creature Vigilance, Trample, and Haste, which is obviously useful when you have a 10-10 artifact creature um, on the battlefield, and also uses uh, uh, Hedron Archive, sometimes two copies, sometimes three or four, um, alongside three copies of Sky Sovereign Console Flagship to provide some some reach, um, some kind of mid-game control uh, stabilization as you're working your way up to the Colossus. But th- there are versions of this deck that can put four colossus in play on turn four that so i mean it's in in many ways an alternate uh uh combo deck to the team or aetherworks uh builds and in and by all accounts somewhat more consistent i mean this deck is going 5-0 uh in leagues on magic online on a regular basis and basically the way you get all of all of them in play is you have sanctum of, of ugans in play where if you can get to the point where you can cast your first Metalwork Colossus, you can sacrifice the Sanctum of Ugin and go get the next Colossus, and then do it again with another Sanctum of Ugin and get the next Colossus. And if you happen to just chain your Sanctums like that, since they're non-legendary, um, you can just end up with all four of the Colossus. Colossi, I guess, in play. Um, that's you know a little bit magical Christmas land, but in all of the games that I've tested with the deck, because it's the one I'm going to be running at LGS's um, over the next couple of weeks, um, in standard, uh, and from the series videos I've seen online, um, the deck is surprisingly consistent um, and reasonably good at exiting the the aggro strategies in the early game and stabilizing by turn four or five, and then kind of turning on its game plan. 
Um, definitely an interesting deck. Uh, the Colossus itself was my pick last week to get uh, from a dollar to four dollars. It's already done that, so uh, that that was a pretty good one. And uh, yeah, I agree. We're going to keep seeing this throughout the season, and who knows what uh, Aether Revolt will bring to the table to help set up the big metal guy. Well, you know, I kind of wonder now that we uh, talk about this. Um, if Metalwork Colossus could perhaps be go into the Aetherworks Marvel deck, right? Because in Aetherworks Marvel are playing a lot of those uh, puzzle knots and some other various artifacts. They don't have a lot of creatures. They have the Aetherworks itself. So, I mean, I could see that deck playing, you know, like the Ulamog, the Emrakul, and maybe even the Metalwork Colossus because that gives you something to play really cheap um, if you're if you're playing these other cards to try and build your board. And at the same time, uh, you know, if you if you... Aether works and you miss on your Emrakul or your Ulamog, at least you can possibly get a 10-10 out of it. Uh, kind of a curious bridge card, perhaps. So, um, so I don't know. I don't know. One of the things that, that makes that kind of tough is that in, in my testing, it's really important that as many of your uh, three and four casting cost artifacts as possible make mana. In fact, uh, LSV's list was running, I think, two copies of Hedron Archive, and he was suggesting that it was so good that you might want to go to four. Um, because between Hedron Archive and Cultivator, Cultivator's Caravan, they can actually add, um, uh, you know, in the case of the Caravan, four mana's worth of cost reduction for uh, the Colossus by itself. And the Hedron Archive basically adds six because it's it's worth four and taps for two. Um, mm-hmm. And it's really tough to, remo- to remove those slots. It's also um, really tough to be running, um, uh, you know, eight dead slots that can't be cast. Um, on the cost reduction plan. So, you know, maybe the other works could be in there, but I don't think, I think it would be, the thing is that Sanctum of Ugin is pulling, uh, is basically tutoring up a Colossus for free. Um, and so it's almost a better game plan um, than the other works, which only looks at the top six cards. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's completely fair for sure. Okay, um, let's move on. Uh Next up is, uh, oh, you know what? Why don't you do the next one? It's your turn. Sure. So Panharmonicon out of Kaladesh uh, made a big move last week, primarily on the back of the video series that uh, Seth did um, for Goldfish, uh, moving from about 250 up to $6 for over almost 120% gains. Then there were some you know scattered chatter about whether or not a Panharmonicon deck might actually show up at the Pro Tour. As it turns out, uh, it did, did not. Or I, I may have heard that like one person was running it or something, um, but it certainly wasn't a force at the Pro Tour. It certainly didn't put up any big results, didn't show up in, in the decks that went better than 7 and 3. Um, you know, it looks like a dud for standard. Um, although that, based on the the videos I've seen of the deck being played, it's definitely fun enough that I would I would <laughs> hazard to run it at a, at a Friday Night Magic uh, just for the fun of it. Um, that being said, there's plenty of demand for the card. Um, it's kind of a, a a classic casual card, EDH card. Um, I think that the price is going to you know has had spiked up in the like five six dollar range towards the end of last week it's already kind of falling back towards the 350 to four dollar range and i think it's going to hover in that three to four dollar range for a while and you might even look for opportunities next summer to be picking them up at two dollars or 250 um foils um have headed headed north however and are likely to keep moving in that direction um as uh, the edh players that are interested in this card are definitely reaching out to grab their copies yeah yeah i actually grabbed mine 
I don't know if it was while we were recording last week, uh, but I definitely, I, you know, I was like, you know what? It was like 12 bucks and I'm like, this isn't going to be that much cheaper ever and who knows what's going to happen. So I just grabbed it. Uh, I'm looking at foils right now. It looks like you could pick up copies for like 1050. So it's dropped a little bit, um, but I really don't expect us to get much into the single digits, you know, maybe just maybe, but you know, this is just so good in so many places. I, I, I think I, I waxed poetically about this last week because I was thinking it was my pick of the week or something. Um, so I, I'm definitely uh, reluctant to jump in on Panharmonic on non-foils for the time being. It just seems like the type of card that they're going to end up reprinting a bunch because they know it's going to be very popular. Um, but the foils are, are certainly worth keeping your eyes on, um, and, you know, even if it doesn't show up in standard. Yeah, it's, it's hard to predict how this is going to go because I, I picked up a, a bunch of um, foils, uh, Japanese promo foils from the pre-release and uh, some Russian non-foils and and was showing them off on Twitter in a picture I took and people were like, ah, oh, nobody's ever going to buy, you know, Ru- Russian panharmonicons. And then I sold a bunch of them for 10 bucks on eBay um, that I picked up for 250 Um uh, sucks that the Harayuya packages are EMS only these days, and you're kind of looking at a minimum $25 charge plus whatever customs dings you to bring a package over overseas when they used to have just a regular mail option. But uh, the fact that they got here fast meant I was able to start flipping them uh, almost immediately and regaining my uh, the, the money that I dropped into that little package. Mm, that's good. That's good. Um, let's see. It looks like... Yeah, okay. Okay. All right. Uh, moving on. Our next card is Song of the Dryads from Commander 2014. Uh, started the week around five. You know, we're showing a price of 12. Um, when I'm looking, I'm looking at TCG player here and I'm seeing a market price still just over five bucks, although the cheapest copy is $7.75. Um, and there's some scattered copies in the 10 to $13 range. I'm not sure if there was anything specific that, that triggered this. Uh, it looks like to me, it might just have been kind of a, a lower supply card that somebody decided to snag up all the copies under five dollars. Uh, but I haven't heard, you know, anything about this. Um, you know, it, there, no no catalyzing factor under other than low supply. Uh, do you have any insight into this that I'm missing? Well, there's a whole school of speculators that are just scouring TCD all the time, looking for cross-referenced um, scenarios where cards that are played heavily in one format or another. Um, or on the reserved list, get into their relatively low supply period. And and one of the patterns that I've noticed is that in supplemental products, and commander sets are a good example, um, whatever rarity is printed on those cards is is a complete falsehood because they're not in booster packs. They don't have the same ratios of distribution that uh, a normal standard set has. And so they, they and there's only one copy of, of each card, and those copies appear in every single version of the product. So that means they, they all have a unified rarity, and let's call that rarity rare, um, for argument's sake, uh, on the basis that you can, if you want to start cracking product to pull these cards out, you're only ever going to get one. So if there's you know $10 of, of good cards or $15 of good cards or even $20 of good cards in these packs, you're not going to see LGSs cracking them the, the way that they would crack booster boxes last week for Kaladesh, as the Kaladesh, you know, average rare and mythic prices were spiking heading into Pro Tour hype, they're not going to do that for Commander sets because Commander sets, the, the they're just never going to be able to pull their money back out of it in any kind of predictable fashion. Um, and so the supplemental sets that are not required for standard um, 
it's a good idea to be tracking what starts heading towards low supply two to three years out from either an initial printing or a reprinting, because that's when even if a card used to be 20 and it's crashed down to three, it has a chance of eking back up. And we've seen that repeatedly in things from the earlier commander sets. Uh, on EDH Rec, this card uh, seems to be quite popular in uh, most of the green commander decks in Azuri and Titania, Yisan, Freilis, Omnath, Selvala. I mean, all of those those generals run this card. Pretty much any green general seems to have interest um, in Song of the Dryads because it's one of the few ways that green can handle almost any permanent on the board. Um, so, you know, low supply coupled with, you know, fairly persistent and growing EDH demand is is pretty much the story here. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I was thinking. Um, and it's it's the commander sets are always worth keeping your eyes on um, for for these types of cards. I, I completely agree with you there. There's just, uh, you know, it's so easy for them to slip under the radar, especially if you aren't the type of player who's really playing EDH frequently and is in there building decks all the times and keeping your eyes on this. They they can really sneak up on you. Um, and with all the other sets coming out, sometimes it's easy to kind of forget that they're there. Uh, you know, when was the last time you heard anyone talk about containment priest or, you know, you know, they don't even have to be the, the legacy card of that set. It's just to kind of sneak in and, the, and suddenly the price is, is a lot higher. So uh, certainly some opportunities in there. I was actually looking at Commander 2014. Um, not that long ago for for an article title because I wanted to take a look, but the prices hadn't quite turned around quite enough for me yet uh, just to start really seriously considering that set, but definitely worth mining um, at some point. Yeah, and I mean at this uh, okay. point, at this at this point, it's almost arguable. You can argue that you know standard and modern are still the biggest de- uh, demand pulls. I mean, the fact that EDH only ever runs one copy of the card um, definitely hurts it. Although sometimes the card is so good in so many different decks that people that have you know five or ten commander decks buy a copy for each of their decks, and it kind of mimics the the four of demand that you would get in one of the constructed formats. Uh, or the competitive constructed formats. But I'm, I'm convinced that, like, for instance, Conspiracy Take the Crown is probably going to have a bunch of great specs um, over the course of the next, you know, six to 12 months that two years from now are going to suddenly spike because that set was crushed in between the releases of Kaladesh and Eldritch Moon, and there's just no way that that much of it is going to get opened um, compared to, you know, a fall set. And Conspiracy 2 had some really interesting cards in there, too. Uh, it was much deeper than the first Conspiracy. So I completely agree with you. That will be something to keep an eye on because uh, there will be some some interesting stuff in there, I think, in another year. Yeah, and with with how little Legacy is getting played these days, I would rather be targeting EDH cards generally than Legacy cards. I mean, even dual with all the reserve list spikes we've seen in the last year, dual lands have barely moved. Um, yeah, I don't want to be anywhere near legacy cards at this point. I mean, what's wh- why? Why? What's the point? Like nobody, anyone playing legacy has been playing legacy for a while. They kind of already have their stuff. So I, I, I don't remember the last time I bought a card to spec on legacy. You know, if, if it has legacy demand, I'm not upset about it, uh, but I would not be interested in something just for that reason. And we've just seen so, so many legacy cards uh, on reprint, like show and tell and conspiracy too. Just their prices drop through the floor and just hover there for ages. I mean, show and tell used to be an eighty dollar card. Now it's twenty bucks if you're lucky. Yeah, yeah, that uh, that bubble definitely burst. Um, all right. So next card up. Why don't you give it to us, there, James? Sure. So uh, the big uncommon out of Kaladesh that uh, was everywhere on camera in any red deck that could cast it, and there was plenty of red decks. Was Harnessed Lightning. This is the uh, instant spell that. 
uh, allows you for one in a red to uh, deal X damage where X is how much energy you're willing to sacrifice. Um, it's really nice because you get to resolve the spell before you choose how much energy to spend. So there's a little bit of strategic flair there that makes the card uh, extra worthwhile in the red decks. Uh, it's a little it's a little weird that we're in a format where it's very hard to go to the face with red spells at the moment, but um, to uh, you know, balance off uh, on not having that ability. The red, the red creature kill has gotten a lot better. I mean, this is harness lightning basically functions like a red terror in most of the decks that are are red, and you see it in everything from red aggro all the way through the combo and control builds. And uh, yeah, it's going to be a very uh, useful card that's wanted by so many different decks that it could easily be that kind of uh, unusual, uncommon in a fall set that can hold a decent price point. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. It's uh, the red spells have a lot less reach. I mean, you know, you look back at the days of Stoke the Flames, uh, where you could do, you know, twenty percent of your opponent's life total for four for zero mana. Um, but at the same time, yeah, Harness Lightning was was ludicrous. I mean, it was just doing so much work. And there will be games where that card can will kill. I mean, you can kill Emrakul, right? Like <laughs> Emrakul. I don't think Emrakul. Has protection from it? I don't remember. It's been a while uh, since I've looked at the card. Yeah, yeah that, the new Emrakul has protection from instant, so it can't kill Emrakul. Oh, but we did, it's, but it's, we, but we did see it take down tons of mid-range creatures that, you know, from in, and you sometimes you would see a look of shock on players' faces that were facing it, even though they'd probably seen it cast against them multiple times in the tournament, because it's just so unusual when you have, you know, say red and some other land up. You know, you, you finish your turn with two lands up, and one of them's red. To be able to kill uh, four or five tough, toughness creature on that mana curve is very unusual. Um, yeah. And it was taking taking down Avacyns. It was taking down Thought Not Seers. It was taking down, um, you know, big stuff uh, that had, you know, Torrential Gear Hulks were getting taken out by Harness Lightning in, in the mirror match in the finals. So, you know, it's it's an important card. Um, and even though we're going to see tons of Kaladesh opened, uh, I suspect that this will be one of the uncommons that shops are just going to stubbornly charge two to three dollars on no matter how much product gets open yeah and uh i mean i can see games and i don't think it'll happen often but i can see games where this will be used where this will shoot down metalwork class high right like it's not hard to imagine a deck generating that much energy yeah i mean you can you can get to that point in the game if you haven't if you have a deck that's running a lot of energy cards but doesn't have a lot of energy outlets um that's yeah. where harness lightning really shines yep Okay, uh, last on our list, the largest gainer this week, Torrential Gearhulk. Uh, we're looking at both foils and non-foils from Kaladesh. Started the week at around $8.50, uh, ended the week at close to $30. Uh, this is the blue uh, Snapcaster Mage Hulk. There is some clever name for this other than Snapcaster Hulk, but I don't remember what it is. Um Price has definitely moved down since uh, it peaked close to $30. We're looking at prices near 20 right now, uh, a little over that. Although, um, if you had bought in when we were recording this last week on Friday, you would have paid about 8 to $9, maybe 10 bucks a piece. So still plenty of profit if you made it in. So good job if you, uh, if you kind of saw that coming. Um, this was just, this was everywhere. I mean, it was almost like every deck that wasn't a control deck was playing smuggler's copter but every deck that wasn't playing smuggler's copter was playing torrential gear hulk i'd actually have to look at the math but it almost feels like there had to be some the, the, the percentage of decks that were playing either torrential or smuggler's copter has to be like ridiculously large i think um and you know torrential gear hulk is is tougher 
I think, to use than Snapcaster Mage. Uh, you know, Snapcaster was light. It was agile. It could do, uh, you know, we're used to it flashing back like lightning bolts and serum visions and modern for very cheap. But it is interesting that Torrential Gearhawk starts to turn the corner once your spell costs uh, four or more. Um, you know, Snapcaster flashing back a Cryptic Command of six mana uh, and Torrential Gearhawk flashing back a Cryptic Command of six mana. And you get a much better body out of the deal. Um, so it's going to be a little trickier for Torrential to break in the modern, but in standard, which is where we saw it thrive, the spells tend to be at least two or three mana. So uh, it's placed pretty similar to just a bigger Snapcaster Mage in that format. Um, so I do think that this is going to be the Gear Hulk of note for the sh- for at least the foreseeable future. Uh, definitely the the finisher for control deck since it, it provides the them the ability to really turn the corner very hard at turn six by countering um and then putting a very respectable body on the table uh go ahead james sound like you wanted to get something in there well i mean it's first worth pointing out that we did a pretty good job of calling some very uh solid specs for the brochure um during our last show uh but we completely whiffed on this i mean three weeks ago i called the verterous gear hulk as the gear hulk most likely to top 30 dollars um i was convinced there was going to be some kind of a uh, go wide strategy that finished its curve on on verterous and verterous was played in in multiple decks of the pro tour some of which did very well um but the you know in the end it was the control decks uh, through or the control deck players through test intensive testing that figured out the card that really broke your Hulk wide open. Um, and, and that was glimmer of genius. Um, the ability to cast uh, a four uh, mana instant card draw spell um, for free off the gear Hulk at, at and, and flash it into play, block something, kill it, then scry to then draw to was exactly the kind of like massive, uh, 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 card advantage engine that the control decks were looking for. And we showed, saw it show up in the blue-red um, uh, Dynavolt Tower control builds. We saw it show up in the Jeskai control build and the Grixis control builds that Romeo and, uh, and Shota were running in the finals. Um, and that that now becomes the kind of uh, the floor for how good your control deck has to be. Um, if you're going to change up the mix of of car of spells and and creatures, you have to have a pretty damn good reason now for the rest of the season to not be running the Gear Hulk Glimmer of Genius um, two card combo. Um, and the fact that you can, you know, it doesn't have to be Glimmer; it can be something else. You need like a super powered harness uh, lightning that's going to do, you know, eight damage to a creature or ten damage to a creature because you've already cast a few Glimmer of Geniuses earlier in the games and a few harnesses um, is just icing on the cake. Um, but it's, it's interesting to note um, that, as with many Pro Tour specs, even the ones that do extremely well on camera, I mean, this card figured prominently in the top eight in multiple decks, including both of the decks that were in the finals, and it, yeah, sure, it got up to $30, and if you were real lucky, you might have outed at that level, but now they've fallen, you know, right back to the to the, uh, the $20 price point, which is still about double the lowest point you could have got in at, so there's still some nice profit on the table, but... Just be aware that when something spikes hard, it's often uh, tough to get out um, fast enough as people engage in a big race to the bottom. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, in this particular case, you would have been okay because uh, you're still profitable multiple days later. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, if you had gotten in on what you know aetherworks marvel you you basically didn't profit right like you, you couldn't you couldn't get there you would have made so little that it would was almost irrelevant to have done it 
Yeah, I mean, I think Aetherworks, I don't think the Aetherworks Marvel deck is dead. Um, it's been exposed through multiple, um, you know, awkward moments on camera as being uh, an inconsistent deck. Uh, and that level of variance may not be what everybody's looking for. Um, I still think there's going to be a lot of players that, like, just are entranced by the idea of casting Emmercool and Ulamog for free. Um or in the early to mid, you know, turns four or five. And so I still think Me that deck's... Prime among them. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, the, the deck's going to get played at LGS. It's a completely different scene in your in your local store than it is at the Pro Tour, where they're, you know, trying to... It's really about the metagame that's specific to the Pro Tour. I mean, even Shoda said, don't play Grixis Control. Um, hmm. And in your local... You know, they said, you know, what do you think about you know, people trying to play this deck and, and, use, and playing this deck? And he said, no, it's a Pro Tour only deck. Um... So these are all things to keep in mind. Um, I think that the this Gearhulk will hold this this price, high teens, early twenties. Um, keep in mind that a lot more people are going to play aggro uh, worldwide than will ever play control. It's just that much harder to be a control player. And a lot of these decks only ran two copies of this card, which is actually probably one of the bigger reasons that it's falling down back from thirty. Um, whereas Gideon, my pick from last week, um, Ally of Zendikar, is has crested twenty five from the twenty we called to get in on it. Uh, before the Pro Tour, and is now pushing towards 30 because it's a it was a four of in almost all of the nine and one decks, which we'll get into in a little bit. Well, yeah, let's <laughs> you know it worked the the Gideon worked out very well, but let's not let's not get too far ahead of ourselves here. There's a pretty good reason why that thing crested 25 <laughs> in the last uh, two two days for 24 hours. <laughs> well, I mean. Um, the, it, yeah, I and mean, we'll get to that. But it, it wasn't actually just the last 48 hours. It was moving from the Pro Tour results once the 9 and 1 decks were revealed. Um, what happened right, right, right. two days ago just reinforced that. Yeah, yeah I agree. I agree. And, uh, you know, on Trench Gear Hulk, um, you know, it's not uncommon to see these essentially Pro Tour only decks. I remember distinctly back in Pro Tour Innistrad, or maybe it was Dark Ascension, and John Finkel and a bunch of guys showed up with that Spirits deck and absolutely... Uh, I mean, it was the breakout deck of the of the Pro Tour. Uh, played Drog Skull Captain and the one Geist that tapped their stuff down. That uh, I'm having trouble remembering. It's a four mono one. Oh, um, Nibbles of the Frost. No, it no 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 because this was back during Innistrad and Nibbles of the Frost didn't exist. Oh, okay, Dungeon okay. Geist, I think. Dungeon Geist. Yeah. Um, yeah, but uh, and then it disappeared. You just you never saw it again. It was not at any of your local stores. It was not at GPS. It was nowhere. So this is not an uncommon phenomenon. For so for if you've been around the game for a long time, you will recognize this. Uh, but you know if you're newer, just keep in mind that some pro tour lists will will persist through uh, the metagame at GPS. It, it opens at F and M, but not all of them will. And those control decks are especially difficult to transfer. Um, as, you know when they don't. You know with a card like sphinx's revelation the power level on there is so intense that you know that can carry the archetype through the rest of the metagame but when it's being when it's a bunch of like middle mid-level cards like sixes and sevens that are kind of cobbled together um you just really need an extremely strong pilot uh and a defined or predicted metagame to succeed which is what a pro tour is but you know for the average guy showing up to a star city open um he doesn't have that that power level nine or ten card in standard to ride on sometimes and, and we don't have any of those at the moment you know torrential gear hulk's probably an eight um it'll be interesting to see how the price on this handles because gideon like we said is just crossing 25 dollars but he's basically the only playable card in battle for zendikar at least the only card that can carry a price tag and he's you know he's just over 25 now and that's the result of some information we got kind of for 24 48 hours ago so um you know i think it's 20 dollars sounds correct for torrential gear hulk but 
Uh, you know, we're still having, we still don't quite understand the Masterpiece series entirely and in inventions. I feel like we're not quite there yet. So um, I don't know, you, you know, $20 sounds comfortable to me, but he might slip, slip, slip lower, especially with how chock full of interesting cards Kaladesh is. Uh, might be tough to hold that price tag. Well, the thing is that if, if when, when you're talking about a set that doesn't have a lot of EV tied up in the non-expeditions uh, or masterpieces, um, there's actually a very good chance the top two or three cards can spike hard, um, especially now that we're back to the 24-month standard, which we'll, we'll talk about in our final segment. Um, so maybe I'll, I'll, I'll hold the, the Gideon discussion in full for that segment. Let's, let's move on to our uh, picks of the week here. Um, yeah, yeah, what, sure, sure. So what, go, go ahead and get us started there, James. So, I mean, all my picks this week are are coming from my review of um, cards in Modern Masters 2015 that I don't think are going to get reprinted in 2017, either because they've been reprinted again or because the the incoming cards that are almost certainly being included, like Snapcaster and Liliana, um, would result in the EV of the set being too high, so we know that something's got to give. Um, and especially I'm looking at cards that I think have great long-term demand profiles, but that, uh, have maybe, uh, been sliding based on the modern meta that's currently in play. So my first pick of the week is Cryptic Command, which if you can believe it is down as low as $16 on TCG player, <sighs> which is just incredible for probably the best counterspell since Force of Will. Um, confidence level here is seven. It's a mid to long-term play. You don't need to be in a rush to get in on it. Uh, it's possible that if you wait till the holiday season, you might be able to get these at $12, $14. Who knows um, how low this, this card insane. can go. Um, the reality is just that, you know, blue control is not a good place in modern right now. The format's too fast between affinity and infect and some of the combo decks. Um, Cryptic commands is not where you want to be, but uh, the the time will come where we will come back around on this. And I think that one of the things that's interesting to think about is that if the form, modern format was to get uh, updated in terms of what sets were included to shake it up, and I think that, that the more I think about it, the more I think that that's inevitable. Um, I think that we keep the format, it's still called modern, and we just lop off a bunch of sets. Any card that's been reprinted in a modern master set is probably safe. Um so there's there's a very good chance that Cryptic comes back into its own, and I I think that if you target these under fifteen dollars and your expectation is to hold them for a couple of years and they're going to crest twenty five, um, there's a very good chance that you're gonna you're gonna be able to see some reasonable profits there. Sure, I, I don't think that's unreasonable at all. It's it's kind of amazing for me to see these prices this low. I'm kind of surprised at the the NPR promo. That's the the Magic Player Reward textless one. I remember these were at like fifty five, sixty, and there were like six of them on the internet. You know, I grabbed a couple and they spiked to like ninety. And you know, they the NPR program had been discontinued, so I was like, whatever, I'll wait. They can break a hundred, and now they're down like forty, forty three which is a little disappointing, but um, I, I do think Cryptic Command will come around again and will be a big part of the metagame at some point, whether they change modern um, and drop off some of the old sets. Uh, I, You know, I actually kind of wonder, Cryptic Command is a type of card I could see kind of pulling Torrential Gearhulk into modern, actually. Um, again, because, you know, you can pair Snapcaster with Cryptic, or torrential with with cryptic, it's the same mana either way. It's actually a little easier to cast with with the gear hulk, uh, and you get a much better body out of it. So maybe um, torrential gear hulk starts pushing in the modern cryptic gets better. I don't know, but it is certainly basically the strongest counter spell in the format, I think. Um, and it's only a matter of time until we get back to that. 
uh, eventually they'll unban a blue card <laughs> and but, blue will be will be good and modern again well i mean if that if the format ever slows to the point where that's good uh it's it's pretty gross because it actually reminds me of uh doing like collected company into eternal witness right where you use the eternal mm-hmm. witness to immediately get back the collected company um because yep. you can you can gear hulk the cryptic command and return the gear hulk to your hand and then go in and do it again with some other card it's <laughs> yeah. just so much bigger than eternal witness cryptic command <laughs> or uh eternal witness collected company collected company <laughs> yeah that's pretty gross <laughs> all right my first card for this week is uh is grim flare from eldritch moon um i'm looking at a mid to, mid to long on this guy probably about a seven um right now you can stand copies in about the 16 range uh, you know, the the number one deck at the Pro Tour was actually Team Aetherworks. Um, and number two was uh, Black Green Delirium. And it maintained its presence in the metagame, not only in day one, but in day two. And it also had a very a strong representation in the top performing standard decks. And it showed up in the top eight. So it all in all, it had a, a very solid weekend. Uh, it's just a, a consistent, powerful strategy. And uh, Delirium is a type of thing that is going to be playable Every single weekend through standard, you know, these the Grixis controllers that show to play. He said, this is a pro tour only deck. Don't play it at your local event. But Delirium, I mean, you just have solid cards with a solid game plan. Um, and Grim Flayer is a part of it. And no matter what build of Delirium you're on, whether it's the really small aggressive version or the sort of mid rangier version, Grim Flayer is still there. And he's been very popular and modern in the Jun list, uh, both Jun and Abzan. So we've got a lot of demand on grim flare he's uh from various sources and various deck lists in uh, two formats he's um from eldritch moon which is a, a good set i think to be specking on right now it's a second set mythic um and you know it's it, for 15 16 bucks you know it sounds like that's kind of a high buy-in but uh, i would not be surprised to see this crest 30 dollars um given the 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 power level uh, of the card in, in the the prominence in in two formats and and i know we talked about the foil you 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 recommended the foil like two weeks ago three weeks ago i picked up several of those i know we both own some foils but even the non-foils i think at this point are worth considering it's interesting because i i think that a lot of people have slept on this card on the basis that it feels like a rare like there's no reason for this card to be mythic it's not in any way a story character or any kind of legendary uh, effect it's kind of a subtle card i mean it just looks kind of like a, a dorky tutu that is unlikely to ever get in um but when it becomes a four four um and starts trampling over and giving you a ton of card advantage in the graveyard things get real serious real fast and there are people that have been testing the card that have talked about it as being potentially better than tarmogoyf uh in certain builds and certain meadows um in modern and it's a mythic it's not a rare so the the premise that it it may hit a, a peak in, in standard at some point where green black delirium just becomes a really great deck um, that is, you know, winning tournament after tournament or has put up some really good results over a period of time. If that is coincident with uh, it doing really well in modern um, at a GP or something in the same time frame, then this card can definitely get to 20 or $25. I mean, we, we've seen that the, the spiking price for an in, uh, you know, a standard set mythic is somewhere around $30 um, if it's got enough demand. And when it's got modern to back it up, 
Um, you know, 16 is, you know, as you said, not the ideal buy-in. We certainly was much more exciting when I was picking them up under 10. Um, but I think if you need a set of these for, you know, you're thinking about putting it together for Jund, I don't think you need to hesitate to pull the trigger and wait till it rotates out. Um, it might be the kind of card that, that doesn't drop very much. And it, if it does drop, it might end up be, you know, being a drop from 25 back to 15. And you can pretty much pick it up at that price now. Um, the fact that you get to play it in standard for a while, if you want to play green, black delirium and then transfer it into your modern deck definitely gives you a two for one. Um, if you happen to like both decks. So yeah, I can get with this. Um, it's also, it's also the 13th most played, uh, creature in standard right now. Hmm. I, 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 um, you know, it's, I, I don't want to tell you that you should go out and just spend $300 buying copies of this or whatever, but this is a type of card that I will absolutely trade for in every trade binder I can find. And, you know, even, you know, both of you are going to have your phones out. You're going to be looking at prices, but almost anything that you're putting up that's worth $13 is not as good as the $13 that that's worth. Or 15 or 16 or whatever. <laughs> if you can trade out two Aether Hubs for a Grim Flayer, I think you take that all day, right? Hey, wait, Aether Hub's not $7, is it? <laughs> yeah, it, it spiked to 7 during the Pro Tour. Oh, during the Pro, okay. Jeez, man, can you imagine? God, how exciting would that be? It's just it's an, un- laps. an uncommon uncommon land at the, that's in the right place at the right time. I mean, it's back down to... It's like three to four bucks. Yeah, right three now. to three to four bucks. But I mean, still, you could trade out three three copies of Aether Hub for a uh, a Grim Flayer or a, a playset of Aether Hub. That's a nice place yeah. to be. Playset of an uncommon for the oh man man for a mythic? literal literal uh, victory laps around your F and M. Yeah, th- that one's fine. <laughs> All right, what's your next card? Especially because I just don't think Aether Hub is the land that every deck needs right now. Um, yeah. Who knows what lands we're getting in the spring, and then all bets are off. Mm. I mean, that, or they print a, another land just like Aether Hub that somehow makes Aether Hub even better, and then there's absolutely no reason to not play just play for Aether Hub every single time <laughs> forever. I find that hard to believe. I mean, the Aether Hub is is thriving in the presence uh, or the lack of dual lands uh, being available that are um, of you know modern quality. We don't have fetches. We don't have shocks. Um, and all of the rest of them have, have uh, you know, some kind of condition that prevents them from being universally adopted across all of the decks in the format, especially since we have a pretty good rock, paper, scissors thing going with uh, aggro control and combo all being present in standard. Um, but either have just providing any color you need and interacting with a lot of the good energy spells that ended up getting played is, has been the perfect storm for that card. Okay, um, can you imagine if either have landed in one of the Planeswalker decks instead? <laughs> it, would be, it would be msrp it would, it, the aether hub would be worth the msrp of that deck the planeswalkers would be free yeah it, it would be crazy the the if aether hub had even been a rare uh it it might be a 15 or 20 dollar land right now oh yeah yeah for the sure. uh so next on my list was in continuing of my theme of moderate undervalued modern masters 2015 cards um is dark confidant uh you don't need to say too much here. It's it's a thirty dollar card right now. Supply is relatively high. There's no rush to get in on this at all. But you see any weakness heading into the holidays? If you can snag a playset for a hundred dollars or something, or 
check out some Facebook groups um, or some of the the sellers that sell below TCG low on Twitter and so forth. Um, I think, you know, I like the the new art better than the original art for sure. Um, I thought always thought the Bob Maher art was too kind of weird and cartoony. Um, definitely like the sleek kind of stylish look of the new art. Um, not everybody agrees with me, but uh, I've noticed in sell pattern in, in sell, buying and selling these since the new art appeared that the new art seems to be favored on average. And uh, I don't think we're getting Dark Confidant again. We've got it the last two Modern Masters. It just doesn't make sense that we're getting Dark Confidant yet again this this coming spring. Um, likewise, I don't think we're getting Tarmogoyf. And I think Dark Confidant, if it doesn't get reprinted, starts the trek up towards $45 because Jund is still a very solid tier 1.5 deck. And if they at some point decide to neuter some of the aggro decks like Infect, um, then Jund will get that much better and Dark Confidant will be back on the podium. Mm, okay yeah that's that's totally fair and you know you, you talked about this a while ago too and it's already crept up a little bit since you last discussed it i think yeah i mean it's it's all about this card staying out of print uh we've seen what the demand pattern is like for modern cards and and we've seen how modern master sets uh affect uh these cards when they offer up you know back-to-back reprintings two years apart but i don't think they're going to go for uh the triple play and reprint the cards that they've printed twice again like kiki jiki either um you know i don't think we're gonna get kiki jiki yet again there has to be something different about these modern masters sets every two years that sets them apart otherwise they're all just going to kind of blend into each other and they're going to lose a lot of the brand value mm-hmm, mm-hmm, for sure um okay my second card this week is hissing quagmire this is the Manland from oath of the gatewatch the black green guy uh this card has seen a little bit of a price spike recently and jumped a while ago too it started out its life under a dollar at one point um copies right now are around three dollars i can see this hitting six pretty comfortably uh and possibly even higher than that um you know we saw wandering fumarole hit something like ten dollars uh this past week what did we say no 650 to seven and i think it peaked somewhere above that uh so and there's really not a good reason that um, Hissing Quagmire can't do that as well. You know, that th- that card is completely capable of doing the exact same price movement. Uh, and it's already, it's currently half the price of Wandering Fumeral. Hissing Quagmire is played in the Delirium deck, just like Grimflayer is. It's going to be a major part of Standard uh, as long as Delirium exists. Uh, it's going to be seeping into Modern if it hasn't already. Um, there are going to be strategies that are going to want the, the Black Green Manland, even though it's not a phenomenal Manland, it's, it's better than nothing uh so again i like these around three dollars i think you're you're pretty likely to see these double up at some point in standard especially given that it's coming from oath of the Gatewatch, which uh is a is a might be the set that benefits best from uh this week's rotation changes so i mean i don't hate this pick but i think i if i was going to look at his and quagmire i would first be looking at uh Needle Spires, because Needle Spires is in the color combination that is the most played in Standard right now, with both aggro and mid-range strategies adopting red-white, and some of the control, uh, Jeskai control strategies also running Needle Spires. Um, there's just more demand, where, whereas the green-black Delirium deck is really kind of in its, in its own silo. There's not any other style of green-black deck that's that's very prevalent right now. Um, and I think you want, ideally, you want to be looking at these uh, rare lands, um, if you're looking at rare lands, you want to be picking out the ones that are going to see the most play across the most uh, the most styles of decks or the, n- the greatest number of decks so that, 
you know, just a deck falling out of favor or falling out of the format doesn't tank your spec. Um, well, I, I hemmed and hawed on Hissing Quagmire versus Needle Spires, and ultimately I came down on the Quagmire side because it's like a dollar cheaper than Needle Spires. Yeah, and that's about uh, that, that, that was valid. basically what it, yeah. I mean, there's there's not much meat left on the bone on Needle Spires. Let's say that it goes to six or seven. You're picking them at, up at four. What do you have after fees and your time spent? You have like a dollar on a on uh, per copy or something. Um, and my fear with Quagmire is kind of the same. Like, I if if it's at three kind of retail right now, I want to be getting in at like two and some kind of a beneficial trade or or something. Um, and you know, I'm looking to trade back out at five on the on the premise that at some point. It, it, you know, supply falls to the point where, um, you know, I can feel comfortable with that. But if I'm looking at the supply for needle spires, I'm seeing like 50 plus results for that card. Whereas I'm seeing, you know, something like 174 results for hissing quagmire. And that tells me that, you know, the plethora of red, white decks have been draining that card a lot harder, hence the dollar difference. Um, but I think it's got a much greater chance of making it to six than quagmire does in the current you know, with, with what we know about the current metagame. Now, how that might shift now that uh, Oath and BFC are going to get an extra six months, who knows? It's, I mean, that's a huge gift to these kind of specs is, is this extra time we're getting back with the longer standard rotation. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I guess, I mean, part of my decision-making process that factors in is that I think Kissing Quagmire is more likely to show up in modern, right? We don't see red-white um, as much, I feel like in modern as we do black green, black green's a, a pretty common, common, call it common combination there. Um, and you know, raging ravine was pushed up to like $15 based on its jund play. Now, obviously raging ravine is a very different card and very different position than hissing quagmire, but part of it stems from that too. And I, I, I don't, I think, I think at the end of the day, needle swears and hissing quagmire are probably relatively comparable in terms of speculative purchases. Again, these aren't cards that I'm telling our listeners that they need to go excuse me, buy, buy a bunch of copies are, these are sort of just like, I would be happy to trade for these at your local store. Uh, because I think that you're, you're going to, you're, you're not going to put yourself in a bad position doing that. I mean, if it starts showing up in and modern, find them and you're going to find them. If, if it starts mm-hmm. showing up in modern, it's a future $10 card. My concern is that, uh, and I think you're absolutely right to say that needle spires is almost, un, is very unlikely to show up in modern because the only time you ever see red white is when it's paired with blue and Jeskai builds and Jeskai control builds, and they're going to be running um, Celestial Colonnade all day long because it's just you know the best man land. Um, but the Jundlists so far have preferred to be running you know four Raging Ravine when they're running man lands. Um, yeah. So you know they would have to you know find some good reason to be trying to um, uh, uh, block up the ground instead of going aggro with the Ravine um, for his and Quagmire to really have a great future there. Yeah, I yeah, I don't think that it's going to replace Raging Ravine at all. Uh I just know that depending on how the meta shifts, you know, something like that can become useful. Or maybe we see another black green deck uh kind of come out of the woodwork that maybe plays a little lower to the ground. I, I I'm not sure. I I don't know exactly what might uh push that to the forefront in the format. I just know that, you know, it's in a good color combination in modern black green. Cool. So do you, you want to tell me about your thoughts on wandering fumeral while you're at it? Uh, yeah, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure where I am with this card. You know, it's, it's like five to six bucks right now, but blue red lands are always so good and always so expensive and water and fumarole is really good. Like this is absolutely modern playable as well as standard playable. So I don't know. I was kind of curious to get your opinion on it. Cause I, even though it's, what is it like, what do we say? Four to five bucks right now? I think by 50, uh, 
uh, six bucks, I think. Even though it's 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 like six dollars, it almost seems like this could be a double digit price tag. Uh, where are you on this? What do you think? I mean, my concern. Are you talking about for standard, or were you thinking for modern as well? The same as Quagmire. It, it, it basically it, overall, you know, the, the card is is suddenly a big part of standard. And I think it's going to keep being a big part of standard because there was a lot of blue red floating around. Right. Like if you weren't white red and you weren't black green, you were probably blue red in some way. And it's also going to work its way into modern. Um, I think that there are a lot of decks in modern that will be very happy to see this card. And it's not a two two that touch like it swings as a four power creature, which is going to mean that some of those decks are going to, be able to put the game away real fast with Hissing Quagmire or uh, Modern Fumeral. Yeah, it's got a it's got a fascinating control dynamic to it. The fact that for nothing you can, you know, alternate between it being a one four wall that's, you know, trying to get you through the early game and let you set up shop. And then later when you've already cleared the board by blocking their last big thing with Torrential Gear Hulk and then Harness Lightning you know, down their other threat, the turn after that, you're swinging with a 4-1, like you said. Um, you know, that's that's intriguing from a control perspective. I'm not sure. I, again, I think that the this land in Modern has the same problem as the, the other red-white land, which is that the Jeskai builds um, are almost certainly going to run Colonnade before either of them. Um, I think if Colonnade didn't exist, then Fumarole would be seen in control decks in Modern. The problem is that, like, the Gris- Grixis and Jeskai builds in Modern that are doing anything right now tend to be really low to the ground, you know, running things like Delver of Secrets, Snapmaster, Snapcaster Mage, Young Pyromancer, Tassiger, and Gurmag Angler, and then a whole bunch of one casting cost and two casting cost spells with, like, Coligan's Command being their top end. And until the, they get into a more controlish mode in those color combinations in Modern, that I, I, I think we can't count on these lands finding a home there. Now, on the other hand, what you said about it being a super important land and standard is absolutely true. I mean, it's in the top 10 played lands in the format. Um, the, but I, I would have liked it a lot more uh, at the point where people were picking them up or two, at two or two fifty when people were, were writing articles about it, like six months ago saying, Hey, maybe the, you know, having the same conversation. But I'm just willing to leave that meat on the bone because I know that, you know, picking up 10 or 20, you know, play sets is going to result in very anemic returns. And, uh, you know, the I think the blue red decks will be a fixture in this format, but I, maybe the trains just passed on this. Yeah, the train may have left, right? They may have left the station. It may be too late for this card. I'm not sure. That's kind of that's why I I put it on my list. But I put a question mark. I didn't really feel the details because I I didn't know how I feel about it. Um, We we have seen blue red spike in modern. You'll remember when Treasure Cruise was printed, like suddenly the whole format just shifted to blue red. Uh, So, you know, we're I feel like we're always like one good card away from modern just being some sort of blue red list. in which case, Wand and Fumarola would be far and away the best land uh, in that strategy. So, I don't know. I don't know. It's that's, This is, I guess, something for our, our listeners <laughs> to consider for themselves, right? You know, where, where do you land on it? How comfortable are you with it? But, you know, I'm, I'm still kind of in the boat that worst case scenario, if you're sitting down at the trade table, there uh, are a lot of worse cards you could be picking up than Wandering Fumeral. And the nice thing is that you'll be able to find them. Um, some other some other cards may be tricky to put your hands on, but you'll probably be able to dig these up. Okay, we have uh, we have talked these these man lands down pretty good. So why don't you give us your last pick of the week again, James? 
Uh, yeah, so the the land I've got my eye on uh, at a Modern Masters 2015 is Eldrazi Temple, which is only an uncommon in that set, but it's important to remember that uh, an uncommon in a LGS-only release like Modern Masters is probably more like a rare or a functional low-end mythic um, in a fall set. And Eldrazi Temple uh, was originally uh, available in the like 2 to $3 range before we uh, the presence of the mid-range Eldrazi creatures broke uh, both this and Eye of Ugin wide open, and they ended up dominating Modern um, at the Modern Pro Tour, which basically led to Modern being removed from the Pro Tour, amongst other reasons. And uh, it spiked to over $8 during the kind of height of that fury um, in February last year, and has since fallen back down uh, under 5 and then has been slowly working its way back up as the Eldrazi Bant deck has made its presence known as a, a very real thing and modern even without Eye of Ugin. So um, I don't think we're going to see Eldrazi, reprinted, Eldrazi Temple reprinted anytime soon. Um, I really like the fact that uh, the deck is looking very consistent as a long-term deck in modern in the tier 1.5, tier 2 kind of zone. Um, and I love the fact that Eldrazi coming out of the last couple of years of being in the spotlight are going to be remembered by newer players as a very iconic tribe in, in Magic. And that's likely to lead to a, a whole bunch of Eldrazi casual decks where people are trying to abuse um, these lands at the kitchen table. Um, you know, the, no one cares about Ivugan being banned when they can, you know, hit their brother upside the head on turn five with some giant Eldrazi. So I, I think Temple is likely, you know, if you can get these at, in the five to $6 range and trade or um, as part of a holiday season discount, um, I think you're probably looking at a 10 to $12 uncommon down the road. Uh, yeah, I don't think 10 to $12 is unreasonable at all. Uh, you know, we could rename this podcast MTG Eldrazi Finance, um, we are a big fan of yep, true that. You know, every Eldrazi. Uh, so, you know, and this, and this is right in that vein. And I think you're right. I think this is going to dodge reprints for a while. So, you know, I don't think we're going to see $20 on Common Lands. Not, not that you said that we were getting there. I just, you know, I don't see that as really being realistic anytime in the near future unless they suddenly drop extra Eldrazi on us in Amonkhet. But I do think that Eldrazi Temple has nowhere to go but up. Uh, I agree. It, it's become sort of well-known. Um, and among, you know, newer players, it's, it's that deck. Uh, so, so I like this. I think, I think these are, are great pickups, um, at the very least in the trade table that, you know, you're going to do well over time with, um, you'll be able to find them and there will always be a buyer for them. Uh, yeah. And one of the things that I like about, you know, this, this is the kind of land that's always run as a four of, I mean, it generates twice as much mana as other lands. So you, you don't half asset. If you're going to play it, you play all four. Um, and that's probably mm-hmm. true and as true and casual as it is in modern, um, and so, you know, as a result, uh, that certainly helps prop up the, the speculation potential. Yeah, I, you're, you're absolutely right there. Nobody is playing two Eldrazi temples, right? Like you're, yeah. you're in, if you, if you're in, you're in, you're in. Yeah. All right. So let's, let's talk about this pro tour. Did you, did you get to spend much time wa- watching the coverage of the pro tour this weekend? Yeah, I caught bits and pieces of it. I did not see everything, but I think, I think Friday night I caught the most of it. Yeah. Did, did you get to watch the finals? I didn't. I did not watch the finals. I don't think I would have watched the finals if I had the option to watch the finals. Like it just, I, 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 you know, I remember reading the tweets about it and seeing that it was, it was quite an event and people were going nuts, but man, I don't know. Watching two control decks. I don't know if I could bring myself to do it. Yeah, I guess. I mean, it takes, some of us are going to be much more excited about that than others. Um, I, I thought, think, thought it was fascinating because 
Um, when I'm bringing a deck to the table at a tournament, um, I don't care how competitive the tournament is. I'm going to bring a Johnny deck. I, I want to be the guy that breaks something new that I want to see the look of surprise on my opponent's face when I do something cool. I don't care you about, me both, buddy. I don't care about, you know, driving Jund home into somebody's face or, or hitting somebody upside the head with infect for the 700th time. Um, but at the same time in, in many other games, I, I tend to be more strategic and I can certainly appreciate what I love watching about watching, you know, a control on control mirror, especially in the hands of two true masters of that, uh, you know, genre, um, is getting an understanding of, of, of how much smarter some people are. <laughs> you know, I, I think it's, it's a humbling experience to watch somebody who is laser focused and is playing multiple turns ahead. I mean, you don't always get that at your local LGS. Everybody, if you're at a big enough LGS, you've got a few of those kind of savants in the room um, that are, you know, consistently bringing down tournaments and, and frustrating other players. But you don't always get to see somebody on Shoda's level go up against somebody like Carlos Romao, who's, you know, a, a former world champion who won two GPs in the last three months and then made the finals of a pro tour going up against a guy who just got into the Hall of Fame last year and is at the top of his game. And I mean, maybe maybe that's why maybe that's why I didn't enjoy it quite as much is because Carlos Ramah was just a name to me. Like, I, I don't know if I was playing magic back then, or at least I didn't know who he was. I feel like if you knew like, you know, I knew about his stats. I heard them talk about it. But if you maybe if you were been watching back in the day that that would be that would hit a little closer to home, perhaps. Sure. I mean, I mean, even if you've been paying attention the last few months, right? Because I mean, 2G, he, he basically, he didn't play for a long time. And then he decided to attend two GPs and he won them both. <laughs> and then and then he and then he entered the finals of the next pro tour so were they were they both limited gps no one was a team was a team limited gp and i think the next one was standard if i'm not mistaken yeah i mean i pay zero attention to limited gps and some attention to standard gp so i i think i probably just missed the name and honestly i basically pay no attention to the names at gps anyways yeah, i mean i think the most fascinating part was as you're watching them if you try to imagine that the the how you would have played out the turn how many times I was like, yeah, that's not what I would have done. <laughs> and, and that's when you know that you've got more to learn. And, and that's what in many ways keeps me you know, attracted to this game 20 years later is that, they, that you know, I have not perfected my play. I may never perfect my play. Um, and being able to, and knowing that there are other people that are, you know, out there that are not perfect either, but that are that much further along on a higher plateau, you know, gives you something to reach for. And I thought it was fascinating. Um, but I mean, one of the other big stories to come out of that top eight was the plethora of really cool, um, really fun decks um, that were on display. I mean, we had eight people in the in the uh, in the top eight, obviously, and eight completely different decks. Um, I mean, you can make the argument that uh, Macus Matsukas's red white tokens is just kind of a spin off with maybe twelve card slots different versus red white vehicles in the hands of Ben Hull, uh, fellow Canadian, um, but. We had Jeskai control and Grixis control in the finals, and and there was also room for the Dynavolt Tower blue red control deck that came out of nowhere. Um, certainly wasn't part of my testing regiment, and I I think a lot of players felt <laughs> the same. Um, you know, I made a joke on Twitter at one point while I was writing coverage that um, I was watching you know pro tour jank rares you didn't know were playable because <laughs> the the number of three and four casting cost artifacts that everybody had written off that were on screen was just astonishing. I mean, yeah, it, I, it, it was. This is Wizards' finest hour in years. Just how many cards, especially cards that nobody thought were any good, showed up or were marginal at best, right? Like, it's just, it's been unreal. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a, this is a, a great standard format, and we're hearing that from a lot of different people. And I think that Kaladesh is going to go down in history as one of maybe the top five uh, uh, sets of all time, because we're also hearing that the um, limited format is beloved. Like, uh, I was talking to a couple of LGS owners the other day because I wanted to under, I was asking probing questions about, you know, sales patterns over the last couple of years and play patterns for standard turnouts and stuff, trying to understand the the shift that we're going to talk about in segment four. And the got a resounding, you know, yeah, Kaladesh is sell, selling better than, than Battle for Zendikar. It's a better set. There's The cards are more exciting. Almost all of the decks that are in standard um, are the majority of the cards in those decks, even though... Um, there's six or eight of them that are that are that made top eight, and then another six or eight that are viable. The vast majority of the cards in these decks are from Kaladesh. I mean, that's that's unprecedented. Typically, the fall set is going to produce one or two decks that latch onto the kind of like the major themes of that new block that's just begun. And instead, here we see kind of like green black delirium being the only real real holdover from last season although i guess you, you can make the argument that the blue white flash and blue white mid-range decks are you know an adaptation of the collected company decks you know what do you do with all these great blue white creatures if you're not running collected company the answer is probably blue white flash but you know mardu vehicles is all kaladesh cards for the most part um with gideon um blue red control is almost all uh new cards uh red white vehicles is certainly a ton of new cards and both jeskai control and grixis control wouldn't exist without the kaladesh cards um torrential gear hulk being you know the linchpin finisher in those decks so you know amazing to see a standard format that, that is this diverse um you know and you've got all sorts of wacky decks you can play you can play the metalwork colossus deck you can play uh the panharmonicon deck that that people were getting excited about last week and and this is just the beginning i mean we're only in the first four weeks of brewing we're going to see new stuff coming out for the next couple months uh, yeah it's just it, there's it is it is a deep set it is the deepest set we've seen in quite some time um and and i'm excited to see where aether revolt goes with this to see if this brings as much with it i would be so excited about Kaladesh, even more so if it weren't for the Masterpiece series. It's just, you know, that's going to kind of just squeeze some of the top end out of this. This would have been a really good set, I think, to look at price-wise if it wasn't for the Masterpiece series kind of hanging around and and screwing with things because these spikes are all going to be a, a little muted. Um, but yeah, it's they they really did a great job and and you look at the top eight and it's it's pretty varied too right like i mean really there isn't even i mean i guess you have like a red white vehicles and a mardu vehicles but there isn't even really a repeat in archetype you know we, that, that's a very very top eight that which is impressive that's extremely difficult to do i think from wizard's perspective to build you know that many archetypes into the standard format uh, that are playable and and playable to a top level, and and we did we saw so many so many interesting cards uh, across the top eight and across the top standard decks too. Although, you know, if you look at the top standard decks, it, it tells a little bit of a different story. The four best performing standard decks at the event, all the twenty seven point nine one standard decks, are all the same deck. They're all blue white mid range flash, uh, which is interesting because you don't. It didn't manage to crack the top eight, and nobody was really talking about that list, but it was the best performing standard list, uh, which is interesting. And a lot of Reflector Mage spell queller hanging around in there. That that package is still still quite strong. Well, and and as I was saying earlier in the podcast, the, the reason that my um my uh pick of last week to get in on Gideon, you know, close to 20 
um, worked out was because so many of these blue-white decks are running four copies. They either run, the, the more aggro versions will run usually one main and three in the board, and the more mid-rangey versions run f- the, four f- the full four um, in the main. And then you also see it showing up in the red-white uh, tokens list. You see it in the Marty vehicles list and the red-white vehicles list. So the demand for Gideon um, is being driven by five or six or seven different decks. Um, and now that he's got an extra six months, um, you know, I think I think that this card has a strong chance of hitting 30. It's just going to get it's it's possible that as people move into one or another of these decks, getting will just be will end up hitting 30 on a supply issue that people aren't willing to open BFZ because you can't roll the dice and hope you're going to pull a. a uh, Gideon out of uh, out of those boxes like no LGS in their right mind is going to start cracking uh, BFC boxes at this point even if they've got an extra six months because the reality is that there's just not that much else to be hunting there other than expeditions and Gideon no one's going to flip that coin and so I think supply can drain um, we can see Gideon get down into you know 30 or 40 copies spread across multiple vendors and if that happens it's a $30 card automatically yeah, I mean, um, okay, so it sounds like we're we're kind of transitioning here. So let, let's blend these together. Our, our segment four for the week is uh, this rotation change. So just to recap for anyone that missed it, um, Wizards announced Wednesday morning, uh, immediately after my article went live and validating half of it. So thanks, guys, <laughs> that um, the rotation is changing. Uh, so originally, um, we're, we're going back a couple years now. Uh, a set would come out in the fall, like Kaladesh. It would be legal uh, for two years. So, um, so Kaladesh was printed this year, or let's say um, Battle for Zendikar was printed last fall. Um, this is its first fall uh, in standard again. Um, so it's kind of we've gone one year since Battle for Zendikar, uh, and it would be legal until next fall as well. So a full two years, and Oath of the Gatewatch would also rotate next fall uh, for a little bit less than that. Then Wizards changed it. Uh, about two years ago, they announced that change. So now, Battle for Zendikar was slated to rotate with Amonkhet. Uh, and we were going to have the Shadows block and the Kaladesh block and the Amonkhet block. So, and, and Amonkhet comes out in uh, in the spring. Um, so we were going to lose Battle for Zendikar in uh, like March or April, May. As, as um, well as Oath. Oath. Oath was going with it. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Both of those were going to rotate. So, in other words, we were we lopped six months off the the lifespan of both Battle for Zendikar and Oath of the Gatewatch um, under the new rotation schedule. There's going to be two rotations a year. Well, Wizards just rolled that back and they said, "Hey, you know what? We're going to keep the two set block structure. Um, so instead of uh, you know Theros, Fate Reforged, Cons of Tarkir, it's just Battle for Zendikar, Oath of the Gatewatch, um, and then of course the hidden third Battle for Zendikar set, Shadows Over Nistrad." Um, but we're going to go back to one rotation, one standard rotation a year, uh, which is with, with the intention uh, being that it, it is easier for players to keep up with. Um, you know, for pros, it's a little less exciting because it means by the time they get towards fall, you know, once you kind of hit the spring set, standard is, you know, pretty well figured out. Um, and they have to put some really high power cards in the spring set to shake it up over the summer. So those later pro tours get a little dry. Um, both for the players and for the people watching. But it, it, it makes it so much easier for the players at your store to keep playing. Um, it gives them you know several extra months on these fall sets. It doesn't feel like there's quite as much of a churn. Uh, and you know clearly what happened here was Wizards was trying to make us buy more standard cards more often. 
Um, and I guess very quickly, I mean, the evidence had to have been overwhelmingly compelling in order to make this change this fast. They found that, you know, the people who were playing standard, I guess, were in the position where they were buying standard cards more often, uh, but not enough people were keeping up with it. a lot of people. I think were saying, forget it. I'm not bothering. This is this is too much uh, and walked away. So now Wizards has had to um, double back and and make the change, so, which which I applaud them for. You know, that's that's a that's a tough decision to walk back that fast. Uh, so it's at least nice that they're listening, even if, you know, obviously they're only listening because of their bottom line. Yeah, that's the thing. I, I don't give them any applause on this. I think I think it's the uh, the right choice because I think that uh, players deserve to be able to play with their cards for longer if they're going to invest as much as they do into this game. Um, and I and I fully understand that uh, the format has a much greater chance of getting stale. Um, and I'll speak to the you know the ramifications of that in a, in a moment. But I think that the two you know we, there was some debate on Twitter um, as 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 to you know what exactly prompted this. I think it's you know coming from an agency background, probably two things um, very specifically. One that Wizards has full access through the databases of the DCI to exactly how much standard play is getting played, and they probably saw a downward trend. Um, I don't think that it means that the sets over the last year have sold poorly. In fact, in the in investor calls recently, they said the magic overall revenues were up. What that suggests to me is that initial releases do very well, but I think that trailing releases may have been lower than they have traditionally been. And what I mean by that is that when battle, if Battle for Zendikar is going to last for two years, you're much more likely to buy packs of it you know, now um, because you know you're going to get them until this time next year. Um, so you don't have to be scared about buying them, but that lopping off that six months of rotation meant that already as Kaladesh was coming out before they made this announcement, we were all thinking to ourselves, well, I don't really want to, I'm not going to invest in any BFC speculations. I mean, whatever spiked is probably going to spike. There's, there's no new cards coming in either revolt that are going to help. And it doesn't matter anyway, because once we get to Amon Ket, um, I'm not going to be able to play any of those things. So, you know, I'm not going to bank on, um, colorless Eldrazi, um, you know, suddenly being great again is that I don't have enough time for that to happen. Um, so I think that they saw that the you know trailing sales on sets, the 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 sales that come after the first big um, you know dominant portion of the sales take place in the first couple months of release, you know, people were just leaving the, those sets on the shelves down the road. And so yeah, I don't give them any applause. I think they made a, a, a correct business decision, and I think it works out really well for the players. Um, uh, so long as they don't get bored. Um, and amazingly for us as speculators, I mean, getting this two-month period back makes standard speculation so much easier and really kicks the door in on the people that have been saying that, you know, the traditional ways of speculation are going the way of the dinosaur. Well, <laughs> we're back in the Jurassic, baby, because this is exactly what we were doing <laughs> We were doing for years, and it's going to work out just fine. I mean, we're already seeing, you know, you, you mentioned earlier that one of the... Im- things that's influencing getting into rise is people you know now knowing it's got six extra months and so if it's as heavily played as it is and i can play with it until next october um you know why not pl- pick up a place at a gideon's if you need to spend 80 but 80 bucks or 120 bucks on a place at a gideon's in your 500 dollars deck um or your 400 dollars deck and that's going to last you for a year that's a reasonable price for to get in on a hobby that you're going to play every week um, you know, and, and especially because without fetch lands in the format, with, without a lot of expensive cards um, coming out of uh, Battle for Zendikar, for instance, uh, the format is just generally cheap right now. I mean, one of the, the impacts of the expeditions and the masterpieces has been that standard is, you know, roughly 20% cheaper or something. And um, on that basis alone, you know, 
whereas you know decks like Jeskai Black were almost a thousand bucks, most of the decks right now in standard are between anywhere from two hundred to four hundred dollars, which is a very reasonable price point for something that you might get to play with for a while. Those I got to tell you, those land bases make such a difference. You know, Jeskai Black was back during yeah. the days of fetches, and uh, if your standard doesn't have. Um, uh, really eternal playable lands. If that price drive isn't there, it is so much less money. You know, the fetch land mana base on just sky black was like what? $200. And your mana base price today is what? 40, 50, maybe, you know, just it chops off so much. Well, I mean, it's, it's coincident with the fact that, you know, so many of the best spells coming out of um, the cons of Tarkir block were multicolored spells that were either two or three colors. Um, you know, your Siege Rhinos, your Mantis Riders, your Coligan's Commands, your Dramoka's Commands. These were the cards that were winning games. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, it was, re- it was relatively rare to have like a card like Jace, Vrin's Prodigy, that on a sin- you know, single blue mana was dominating the format. But almost everything else was multicolor. Um, and the fetches made that possible. Um, so, you know, yeah, we're, we're in a very different world now. Standard is very reasonably priced. It's a really great standard. Um, but one of the things I think is interesting um, is that now the pressure is on that they've got to keep it fresh, right? You know, Kaladesh is really fresh right now. Is it going to fresh feel fresh six months from now? Um, especially because the you know the decks, as we were saying earlier, that are that are dominating the format are very Kaladesh intensive. So, um, a the revolt needs to add um, you know additional themes there that feel fresh, but still you know that that shake things up while still letting us play with our older cards for us to feel like we're getting the most out of our standard investment. Um, and it's also going to be interesting to see what happens with Amonkhet because uh, people were asking Aaron Forsyth whether, you know, you know, is Amonkhet going to be a uh, feel like a very weird set because it wasn't planned to interact with the Battle for Zendikar Oath of the Gatewatch block. And they said, oh, it's not finished yet. Well, I find it really hard to believe that they wouldn't normally have had that set put to bed at this point. So obviously, yeah. obviously there were some, you know, frantic meetings where people, you know, they had to re, re pull, pull the team back in the room and say, uh, we might have to change 20 or 30 cards in this set. <laughs> I, 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 that's, wait, 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 wait. Forsyth said that Amonkhet isn't done yet, like recently? Correct. Yeah. On Twitter just the other day. In, in response to, in response to this announcement so that says to me that they are changing the print run um you know I, I don't think they're already at presses but they would be you know my my experience six months out you would already be trying to plan out your your print run and and your your card list would be real close to final so the, oh, yeah. the fact that they're going to be making changes to the set means who knows Amonkhet could end up amazing or it could end up terrible because They've got to figure. They've got to make sure that nothing in that set breaks standard in uh, interactions with BFZ and Oath cards. So, mm-hmm. you know, I love that kind of situation. That kind of weirdness, that kind of uncertainty, that kind of you know last minute decision making is what leads to spikes. Um, oh yeah, so, yeah, that is going to be real funky. That's how you get skull clamp. Oh yeah, exactly. So the, who knows what's coming this spring? I think it's going to be a very exciting, exciting springtime, and I'm certainly thrilled as you know an individual card speculator, as I'm sure you are, to have a 24 month standard back on the table. Yeah, it's the the yeah, it's you know the double rotation was nice um, in that it gave a lot of cards a chance to sort of breathe that they didn't have. Um, so for instance, shadows over in will always be in the <laughs> shadow of battle for Zenikar. Um, whereas, uh, 
it would not have been otherwise. It would have gotten a little bit of time on its own, although that would have been at the very end of its lifespan. So it's hard to know uh, if that even would have really been able to do a lot, given that um, it would have been close to rotating by the time it was it was finally out from underneath it. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it does. It gives so much more um, stability and confidence back to the market um, that it is it is much easier for cars to really sort of to see their full potential, um, both in play and in price because of that. Uh, I, I do find myself wondering if Wizards is going to let something out that's a complete mistake um, or if they're just going to dial the power level so far back on um, and cat that there's going to be nothing interesting because they're going to like, well, we can either end up with a standard that's completely ludicrous uh, because we didn't account for these interactions or we really want to be careful. So we're just going to make Omnicat pointless. Oh, it, uh, it, it, Although I have to, from their perspective, it seems like it's, it's better to just let the set be wild for six months. Well, the thing is that like, well, that's just it, right? Like the, it's a balancing act because every, everyone's main concern with this switch back to the 24 month, especially at the pro and competitive level was you know, it's going to get stale. If if Collected Company was allowed to be played again this fall, everybody's saying there would still be Collected Company decks. We would and and standard um, morale would be at you know potentially an all time low or comparable to what it was when Mono Blue and Mono Black were Devotion decks were butting head in the Theros days, where you know every week a standard just felt exactly the same. And I I remember I I'll watch almost any you know, match of magic on, on Twitch, but I tuned out on standard, uh, during the devotion days. Cause it was just, it was the same. I had seen these matches before. And what I loved about pro tour Kaladesh was that I had not seen these matches before seeing like metalwork Colossus decks go up against vehicles. Decks was all brand new magic to me. And so it's a very fine line because if they, if they make a set too tame, then it's themes will not inject them set will not manifest in in the metagame and if they don't meta manifest in the metagame and the metagame doesn't shift then it gets stale and people stop playing standard for a whole different reason so i mean it it's a it must be a real scary time in the offices at wizards of the coast because they thought that the they out you know remember where 18 month came from we want to sell more product and people have been complaining that standard gets stale solution make standard shorter Oops, that didn't work. Now we got to go back the other direction. So we know we don't have the out of making it shorter, but we've still got to make sure it doesn't become stale. That means that your themes have to really work well together as you bridge the gaps from block to block. And the pressure is really on there because that was actually in some ways easier when you had a, a three set block. If you executed mm-hmm. on the black the block well, because the the themes could be well well woven. Um, and yet, you know, build on each other. So you were you were refreshing the format. Um, the going to two two set blocks in theory was supposed to shake things up more often by changing up the themes. But if one of the themes is a lot more dominant than the other, you know, we're already seeing the impact of that now. We're see in a in a format where you've only got the first set from the Kaladesh block. We're still seeing way more Kaladesh cards get played than we are cards out of the. Sh- or themes or or cards out of the shadows and eldritch moon set i mean we've got spell queller there's a little bit of madness interaction now in the format because smuggler's copper is so good with madness cards and the green black delirium deck is a very real thing but that's nothing compared to the number of decks that kaladesh has spawned um, in a much shorter period of time so definitely going to be fascinating to see how this all plays out Um, and all i know is uh, i'm excited for the potential of the speculation that will result 
Yeah, standard, I have to imagine standard is going to be a roller coaster now um, because it's going to be so much more difficult to line these two set blocks up. And it, you're just going to have more opportunities for e to either be uh, a complete dud and have standard just be like, you know, oh, look, a new block came out and nobody cares, right? Like none of these cards showed up or they're going to not land it correctly. And you're going to be like, oh, look, standard has been completely flipped on his head ever again and again and again. And these cards are a ridiculous power level and nobody can keep track of it. So uh, it's kind of exciting, kind of fun to see. It just feels like it's just going to be higher variance in terms of the play experience and, and uh, consequently the prices, you know, there there's going to be stuff showing up that. Is going to drive some numbers batty uh, for sure. Um, what, one of the other th aspects that's interesting here is I, I've been putting together this this new um, paradigm that I'm publishing the first article on next week that's trying to establish a numerical system of evaluating specs. And one of the the factors that I'm looking at is um, the when you have popularity of a card in standard while it, before it rotates. And it also starts showing up in modern. You know, we've talked about this on tons of different cards, like Collected Company, like Coligan's Command, like Grim Flare, um, you know, Jay's Friend's Prodigy. When you see a, car, a Mythic especially, um, popular in both formats, while it's still in standard, that's where you see really great opportunities. Multi-format dominance early in the cycle. And when you get six extra months, you've got that much more time for it to, to break out in modern before it rotates out of standard. Um, and gives you more potential for there to be that overlap there that causes the spike that we're after. Yeah, you know, I, I think one of the, you know, I, I haven't looked at your your article yet, but I have to imagine one of the, uh, off, the cuff, off my cuff, one of the biggest telltale signs is the set came out and one of the cards showed up in Modern in the opening weekend or the weekend after, or you're seeing it in Modern on Moto. And it's like, wow, if this made that jump that fast, uh, you know, sometimes these cards will land in modern first and then move to standard after that. Um, so I, I think that, you know, that that's probably good. A good point to hit on is where you're going to be, uh, where, where that's going to land well. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the other things we should point out is that this doesn't really affect Shadows uh, over Innistrad or Eldritch Moon at all. They're still going to rotate at exactly the same point they would have in the fall of 2017. It's only um, the fall set and the and the the early winter set that are really affected by this. Um, because the the second block of the year already enjoyed a shorter rotation, and that's always been the case. So any given fall set, BFC or Kaladesh, um, whatever it might be, it always gets the full two years. But every set after that gets something less than two years. And the second block in the year was only ever going to get you know 12 to 15 months or whatever, and still gets 12 to 15 months. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah. So it's it's really the fall set and that first set in the winter that you want to be watching um, on the go forward. As you know, the sets that have specs from those sets have the longest period of time to take off. And um, since the the fall set is typically the one that is uh, quote unquote overprinted the most or sells the most, um, it tends to be the best sales period for wizards based on the way they structure everything. Um, the you know that late January, February set, the small set that comes after might be, you know, one of the best places to be looking for speculation activity because it has a longer uh, period of time available in standard than the, the block that comes after it in the year. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I kind of feel like the, the winner set has got to be good now, right? Like that's yeah. like yeah, the yeah. Oath of the Gatewatch. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
that's definitely where I'm going to be looking. Um, you know, the set size is so dramatic for me um, of a of an indicator and 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 what the card can get away with that uh, you know I tend to really let that drive a lot of my my decisions and my speculation purchases. Like yeah, cards from the fall set can definitely do well, but it just feels so much safer um, to to go with those winter sets, which just got a boost from this. So, I mean, do you agree that the oath of the gate watch got the most out of this announcement? Yes. Um, not only does oath okay. have better cards in general than BFC and better cards for modern. Um, and, the, and it has most of the important Eldrazi. Um, but because it was, I have long been advocating without any direct evidence, um, other than interviews with LGS owners and, and, and so forth. Um, that, Oath undersold versus potential because Eldrazi Winter um, uh, spiked a bunch of cards from that set that were suddenly must-haves in Modern where it was the best deck in the format. And before and once it got banned, there was a lot of feel-bads about buying that set because a lot of those cards were suddenly not uh, worth as much as they, they would have been otherwise. And people almost certainly stopped buying that set earlier um, than they would have on the when they were scared that it would get banned, and then when it was confirmed, it was the deck was banned in modern. Um, you know, people were almost certainly purchasing less than they would have otherwise, and the LGS owners were telling me that it wasn't selling well, and and that leads me to believe that um, you know it's got some really good opportunities uh, based on this announcement, and I, I think it's also worth pointing out that even though the summer set doesn't, you know, Eldritch Moon was our last one, the late summer set. Um, doesn't get as much time in standard um its position in the summer uh when people are out having fun in the outdoors and playing less magic um and especially given now that we've often have supplemental sets that are bracketing it and then it leads into the hype of the fall set leads me to believe that you know what we've been saying for a few weeks now which is that eldritch moon and conspiracy 2 were probably undersold um how, how what their total sales look like versus the winter set we may never know um the best I can ever do on the, that topic is to interview um, owners of LGSs and figure out how many boxes they sold. Um, so maybe I'll try to do some of that research on those two sets and see which one seems to have done better. Um, but I think both of those would be my picks out of the last year's worth of sets. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So this is uh, this is quite a change. I you know it's it's exciting. It's certainly. Um... I got to tell you, I was annoyed with the timing of the announcement. I wish they had done it Monday so I could have written about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, there's a lot. Yeah. There's a lot to consider. So there's there's plenty of plenty of article space still still uh, on the table. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. But it's just sort of like, like I don't know what I, I guess I'm writing about the pro tour this week, and then you know I spend several paragraphs. I'm like, yeah, Gideon. I don't know if I'm really crazy about him. He's really good. Blah blah blah. And then they're like, oh, Battle for Zendikar is legal for six more months. Like, oh, come on, come on. <laughs> <laughs> quarter of my article now pointless all right uh we've been going for a while so do you have any last thoughts you want to share with our listeners i just have one thing uh okay <laughs> what, what i i wrote the announcement article um for mdg price that was published on uh, monday tuesday whatever day it was and the <laughs> somebody uh posted an angry re retort, uh, a regular reader, basically saying I should be banned from writing until I um, correct uh, my suggestion that a card could be banned in standard. Um, generally, what? that's true. Wizards is very hesitant to ban cards in standard. It's a huge feel bad for everybody involved. But 
uh, now that we're back to a 24-month cycle, it is not impossible. If Smuggler's Copter had, Copter had showed up at the Pro Tour in all eight decks, and they were all more or less the same deck, and that, and that went on for a couple more months, like the Eldrazi deck in Modern last winter... Um, you could totally get a standard banning. Um, I, I mean, we have had bannings in standard before. It has happened. Um, and it could happen again if things got bad enough. Now, how bad is bad? Very bad. It would have to be a super stale format with the same deck winning week after week after week and the same card at the heart of the matter and everybody realizing that removing that card would solve the situation. They'll do it. It's just something, it, it's maybe a 5% maybe even less maybe a two two percent chance in any given year but it could happen oh yeah i i actually think the smuggler's copter is it's pretty close right like you know uh collected company was real bad and if collected company had been printed in any set other than it had, dragons of dark europe it had been any had had any longer period of time in standard they might have just axed it and I think Smuggler's Copter being in Kaladesh, they didn't think Kaladesh was going to be legal for two years when they were designing the set. And now suddenly it is. Uh, and, you know, even though it didn't dominate this Pro Tour, I, there's still plenty. There's still room for that card over the next th- leading into Aether Revolt to just sort of take over and become the, like, the de facto card. And in fact, if you look through the top 24 standard decks, either the only decks that weren't playing Smuggler's Copter, I think were control decks. And like everyone else was running, it was still all over the place. It was like seventy percent of the of the top performing standard decks, and I think that we could see that go even higher, uh, especially when you start pulling some of the metagame, the Pro Tour metagame decks out, um, and people just want to show up with strong, powerful decks week in and week out at Star City. And you know who knows what Aether Revolt is going to show up with, but if it doesn't have a clean answer to that, and if God forbid it has something that makes that card better. I, I could see them getting rid of it. Yeah. I mean, it's it's never an easy decision, but, you know, it wasn't that long ago. I mean, I guess, what was it? Jason Stoneforge Mystic were the last standard ban? Yeah. I and mean, that was back in Zendikar, so it's been about six-ish it, years. It was, it was June 2011 that Jace the Mind Sculptor and Stoneforge Mystic were banned. Um, it's five and a half years. Five, that's not that long ago. I mean, no, that was very oppressive, and I don't think Copter is playing out that way. Copter is an ever-present card in, the, in both the... Uh, aggro and mid-range strategies, and that's concerning. Um, it's definitely the card is a mistake. Uh, either the casting cost or its its effect should have been altered. That's for sure, um, because it's just too easy to slide into both of those, you know, mega archetypes. But um, because it slides into a bunch of different decks, and all of those decks seem to have a shot, and the format has ten to fourteen decks that are playable. Yeah, I think we're safe for now. Um, but these things can happen. I mean, there was also March twenty, uh, March tw- two thousand five and June twenty, uh, uh, two thousand four was where you saw the affinity bannings and skull clamp and all of that brokenness get kicked out of standard. And all of those decisions were good decisions. I mean, people were pissed because they owned the cards and and a lot of the people were owned the decks. But the reality was that those standard formats were broken. So. When you have a longer uh, rotation schedule, there's more chance for things to get stale. And trust me, be, listen, they made this decision to make more money, ultimately, both through having players more committed to the game and consequently buying more product. So if they get the same signals that those same stats are falling off because the format's getting stale, the go-to uh, solution is going to be a ban hammer. Because that's... Yeah, and Cobblade was was different, right? Like like the Jason Stoneforge ban was uh, half the format is one deck. Um, but the other half of the format wasn't those cards. 
this is a different situation. This isn't half the deck is or half the formats one deck. It's 90% of the format is playing four of, of this one card, which is a lot more difficult to do um, than to create one dominant deck because that card has to be castable in all four in every, you know, in every deck. So if it's got a colored mana symbol in it, that's really tough. Um, but because Smolder's Copter is an artifact, of course, it, it, you can play it in anything. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it would be a different type of ban than Stoneforge and, and and Jason. That might be the only thing that keeps it out of harm's way is the fact that even though everyone in the room is casting the same card, at least you get to cast it in your strategy. Um, you know, you can play whatever deck you whatever whatever Smolder's Copter deck you want. Yeah, I, well, uh, so, I mean, that was true coming out of SEG Indie. That was, you know, Pat Chapin's quip. And it was true for the first tournament. But because we saw multiple control strategies come to the forefront and, you know, dominate the finals and win the tournament, um, the format looks fantastic. Um, so, that you know, despite the fact that Copter is an utterly broken card for standard, um, we're in a totally safe place for now. And, you know, people just need to be aware that a longer standard has more risk for bannings. Well, I, I'm, I agree with you that the Pro Tour looks rosy. And I'm not saying that that's not how it's going to look uh, in three or four weeks or a month. I guess it's just sort of like some decks at the Pro Tour will uh, still be a big deal a month later and some will not. Um, and if those non-Smugglers Copters decks kind of fall away, uh, then we're going to be left in that situation. Yeah, it's possible. Um, all right. So I think that's a wrap for this week, folks. But one of our longest ones in a while, the Magic Not-So-Fast Finance this week. Um, where can people find you online, Travis? Well, I'm on Twitter at Wizard Bumpin, W-I-Z-Wizard-B-U-M-P-I-N. Uh, Sorry, I lost my train of thought there. I'm a little distracted tonight. Um, on Twitter at Wizard Bumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. I write every Wednesday for MTG Price, and I also do the webcast. It's most weeks, uh, Cartel Aristocrats. And you guys can find me on Twitter at MTG Critic, as well as via my weekly articles on MTGPrice.com. And I'd like to remind our listeners to check out the MTGPrice.com Pro Trader service. For just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year, you can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online collection management and buy less tools that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. All right. Well, I enjoyed our show today, James. Certainly a lot to chew on. I hope our listeners did too, and I will see you next week. Thanks, Travis, and we'll see you all next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Mm-hmm.